I'm Devorah Vale. I'm a life and wellness coach and the host of this podcast. Welcome to Accessing Your Best Self, a space meant for exploring the wisdom of Torah and its practical application for improving our character. Okay, so first of all, I'd like to thank um, a sponsor for this class today. It's a sponsorship in celebration of her daughter's upcoming birthday. Her daughter's name is Cyril Bracha. So I want to wish Cyril Bracha a blessing that all of her prayers should be answered, Latova, and that she should have the best year of her, one of the best years of her life this year. And uh, that all of her wishes should come true. And uh, you know, come from a wonderful family. So happy birthday, Cyril Bracha. So we're continuing with our class that um, we're looking at the subject of suffering. Something that I'm sure we're all familiar with on some level. Because as the Talmud says, even if you put on your shirt backwards or stub your toe, that's a form of suffering. Because ideally, everything's supposed to go perfectly in this world. And when it doesn't, we have to ask ourselves why it isn't. And um, we talked about one reason for suffering last week. But before we begin with the second reason and maybe a little bit of a review of the first, I want to quote to you from a book that's uh, considered a foundational classic book called the Masila Sisharim, or in English it's called The Path of the Just. It's written by Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lutzato, who came from Italy. Very, very interesting personality. Share a little bit with you about him, because it's really amazing. But uh, he was actually put in, he was actually excommunicated from the Jewish community in his day because of his writings or whatever, some things that, uh, rumors that went around about him. But of course, today, everybody studies his work. It's one of the most popular things to study in yeshivas. And um, this new version of it was put out recently. Uh, basically, it says that the Vilna Gaon, who was considered the genius of Vilna, said about Rav Chaim Lutzato, he said, it says, when the Vilna Gaon saw Masilis Yesharim, he said, if Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lutzato were still alive, I would go across Europe on foot to learn from him. So let's hear a little bit about him. So he was born in Padua, Italy in 1707. From an early age, he devoted himself to Torah study at the highest level. His many works demonstrate his complete command of the written and oral Torah, as well as the hidden wisdom of Kabbalah. It's reported that by the time he was 14, he was fluent in all the Kabbalistic teachings of the Zohar and the Holy Arizal. When he was 17, the Ramchal, as he's known, became leader of a small group of like-minded men 
known as Mevakshe Hashem, seekers of God. They studied together intensively and dedicated themselves to prepare the world for the presence of the Shekhinah. Anyway, there's much more about him, but uh, he lived in Amsterdam for a while, and he wrote all kinds of different sparam, another one called Derech Hashem, The Way of God, which is another classic Musr Sefer, a little more esoteric. And basically, Masilas Yasharim is a straightforward presentation of man's purpose in life and how we can ascend the ladder of spirituality. Despite its many profound concepts, it is written simply enough to be understood by any reader. So the Ramchal addresses the subject of suffering very early on in chapter one, where he talks about man's mission in his world. And um, he says, basically, you should truly realize that it is not even possible for anyone with intelligence to believe that the purpose of man's creation is for his situation in this world. For what is the life of a person worth in this world? Or who is genuinely happy and tranquil in this world? Just as the verse in Tehillim says, the days of our years among them are 70 years. And if with strength, 80 years, their proudest success is but toil and pain. Our days are filled with so many types of pain, sicknesses, aches, and problems. And after all this comes death. Even one person in a thousand will not be found who can say that the world gave him abundant pleasures and true tranquility. And even he, that one person in a thousand, should he live to reach the age of 100 years, it is as if he has already passed on and departed from the world. It's thus not possible to think that man was created for the objective of enjoying this world. The second logical argument that he brings forth, he says, is not only that, but if the purpose of man's creation was for the sake of a situation in this world, then there would have been no need for such a distinguished and elevated soul to have been blown into him, a soul that would be greater than even the angels themselves, certainly finds, certainly, since it finds no contentment in all the pleasures of the world. So there's a beautiful parable that's famous about the soul that's in the body. A parable to explain why the soul is unsatisfied with all of man's toil. To what is this matter of the body and soul comparable? To a simple villager who married the daughter of a king. Even if he brings her all the things available to him in the world, they are worthless to her. Since she is the daughter of a king and is accustomed to the luxuries of royalty. So it is with the soul. If you in your body bring it all the pleasures of the physical world, they are nothing to it. Why? Because the soul is from the upper spiritual realms and is not satisfied with mere physical pleasures. 
Similarly, our sages of lesser, blessed memory said, against your will you are formed and against your will you are born. The soul must be compelled to enter the body because the soul does not like this world at all. To the contrary, it despises it. Beautiful song by A.B. Rotenberg. If you want to Google it on Spotify, maybe some of you are familiar with it. It, it brings me to tears. Um, Baruch Hashem, I play piano. So it's called Nishamala, written by A.B. Rotenberg, actually from Toronto, who has a lot of songs. I think they're called Journeys. Um, a lot of different, um, I hear he's coming out with a new one after many, many years. But basically, it's the story of the soul coming into the body and how much it resists and does not want to come down into this world, this physical material world, where just like the king's daughter, there's nothing here that can satisfy it. If you give it all the pleasures of the physical world, the material world, it gets nothing from it. Okay, so basically, I'll read you a little bit of the song. I'd love to sing it to you, but my voice ain't too good this morning. <laughs> but you can listen to it. It's really beautiful. Come with me, little Nishamala, and let me hold you in my hand. And we'll fly away, you and I together, to a place down on the land. Come with me, little Nishamala. Don't shy away. Do as you're told. There's a little child waiting to be born today. You're to be his spark, his soul. And then the Shama answers, but dear Malach, angel, I don't want to go. There's so much pain and evil on the earth below. Let me stay here up in heaven where it's safe and I'll be pure. Please don't make me go away. Can't you see I'm so afraid? And the, the, uh, Angel answers, come with me, little Nishamala. It's time you faced your destiny. As we fly beneath the clouds now, I will show you there is so much you can be. And the Nishama says, yes, dear Malach, I can see Kedusha over there. Look, someone's learning Torah. There's another deep in prayer. I will stay here if you answer me. It's all I need to know. You must promise me, dear friend, that I too will be like them. Come with me, little Nishamala. Oh, it's a task that I must do. As I tap you on the lip, you will forget me. You're on your own. It's up to you. Come with me, little Nishamala. Let me hold you in my hand. And we'll fly away, you and I together, to a place above the land. Now the Malach is calling the Neshama back to where it came from after a life on earth. But dear Malach, no, I don't want to go. I'm not ready to go with you. Where I, uh, where I am, there's so much more I need to do. Please don't make me go away. Can't you see I'm so afraid? Come with me, little Neshama. I've only come to take you home. There's no need to fear your destination. You've earned a place right by the throne. A place right by the throne. 
anyway, that's just a beautiful, short, very succinct understanding of the journey that the soul takes and the idea that we've talked about many times that I have a body, but I am a soul, and that the body is just the tool for the soul to be able to accomplish in this world, to find the sparks of holiness, to connect to the source from where it came. And the challenge of this world is that the soul forgets its purpose, right? The malach taps him on the lip and he forgets all that he knew. And the challenge of this world is for us to remember and to constantly remind ourselves that our bodies are finite and temporary and that our neshamas are eternal and infinite and literally a piece of God that we carry within us. And there's always a struggle between the two. There's always a struggle between the body and the soul. There's a, an idea that the body and the soul, the fact that they're even together is a miraculous thing. When we come out of the bathroom, we say the bathroom bracha, the last part of that bracha is um, that you are the uh, doctor, the healer of the body, of all bodies, and you do wonders. And the idea that God does wonders is referring to the fact that the body and the soul stay together. Because the natural desire is that the body just wants to go back to the earth. It just wants to give in completely to its physical self, that earthy part of us. And the neshama just wants to get out of that body and fly back to its maker, fly back to where it came from. Right, everything is attracted to its source. And the fact that, and it says that the only reason that a person stays alive in our present form in this world is because Hashem is constantly willing your body and soul to stay together. Death is basically the moment when God allows them to release, when God stops willing it, this miracle that these two opposing forces are together. And if for one moment, so to speak, God stops willing it, the body will naturally want to go to the earth and the soul will want to fly back to its maker. And that's really what death is, right? But as long as our bodies and souls are together in this world, it means that God is expecting us to accomplish and constantly work on our ability to keep our minds clear, to see the world through our spiritual eyes, not just in a very physical and mundane way, and to constantly try to raise ourselves up so that we actually infuse this very physical and gross, so to speak, body with Kedusha, with holiness. Right? What is holiness? Holiness, the Kadesh, Kadosh, it means to 
be separate. Just, uh, just for your information, to be separate, to separate yourself, so to speak, from those things that can drag us down, can make us lose our purpose and our mission in this world, and to constantly be trying to elevate our souls through our bodies, right? We do this by the mundane act of eating, right? Instead of just eating like every single animal on the earth does, if we make a bracha and connect it to Hashem before we put the food in our mouth, we've now made the food holy and we satisfied the needs of the soul. We strengthen that soul muscle, <clears throat> that spiritual muscle that needs nourishment and nurturance To the same degree that we pay attention to our bodies, if not more, right? We live in a world where the body gets a lot of attention. And so it should. It's the temple of the soul. But if it's to the exclusion of the soul, then a person will never find any kind of depth of fulfillment in this world. Because the soul doesn't get anything much from it. Okay, so that was the Ramchal. Now going back to last week's class a little bit, he speaks about Rabbi Buxbaum in his book. Oh, I just wanted to mention something else that he says. He talks about spiritual acrophobia. What's spiritual acrophobia? Well, acrophobia is a fear of heights. And it's very common, you know, especially uh, as we get older. I remember years ago, I mean, I think my kids were very little and we were on a cable car in Banff and my husband didn't even know that he had acrophobia. But all of a sudden in the middle of the cable car ride, he started freaking out and like saying, I, I'm, I, I can't believe this, but I'm, I'm terrified, you know, and he was hanging on to the side of the cable car and he couldn't wait for it to stop and to end. And that's when he discovered that he had acrophobia. But there's something called spiritual acrophobia, which basically means a person who's afraid to grow spiritually because it's scary, because, you know, it takes us out of our comfort zone. Maybe it sometimes makes us different than the crowd that we normally hang around with. It goes against sometimes everything that we've been taught and everything that we've been grown, grown up with. And um, one second here. Many people have a fear of climbing too high on the ladder of personal growth for fear of failure or falling or because they don't believe they can do it. Like the common acrophobe, they are fine as long as they have the lower rungs of the ladder to hold on to. But the moment that they think about what it will take to get to the top, the entire world starts to spin. So the Kabbalists teach us that Jacob's ladder is a metaphor, right? The dream of the ladder is, is the metaphor for the um, soul. 
that is climbing to reach higher. But again, it's fearful. It creates fear for us to climb that ladder. Specifically, the fear of leaving the old comfortable version of ourselves behind and possibly discovering, as Rabbi Noah Weinberg used to say, Zatzel, to boys that came through his yeshiva, don't be surprised to find out that your current self may not be your real self. So one of the ways that Hashem tries to bring us closer, we spoke about this month of Teves being a very dark month. Interestingly, another reason why it was a dark month for the Jewish people was specifically because of the celebrations that go on around us in the non-Jewish world. In earlier days, as we know, and not so long ago, Jews hid in their homes during this time of year, fearful of pogroms and those who would call us Christ killers and would go on crazy rampages in drunkenness through the villages of the Jewish people, slaughtering us. So Teves also, interestingly, as much as we know, my husband was shocked the other day. He went to visit his mother, who's 96 years old, Kanainahara, poo, poo, poo. And the, uh, she, she showed me a picture. She was wearing a nightgown with Christmas um, bulbs, you know, all over her that the uh, caregiver had sweetly bought for her so she could be in the festive season. Now he said it was ironic because she was also wearing her Hanukkah socks that they had bought her. You know, and, and he's trying to explain to her that she doesn't celebrate this holiday. Like she's only worked for them for years. And like, you know, we don't, we don't do this. But, you know, it like fell on deaf ears. She couldn't understand how anybody could not. <clears throat> and um, anyway, listen, Baruch Hashem, we don't have to worry the way we used to. But again, another reason for the month of Teves being known to be such a sad, dark month is because of the history that this month had in celebration of their holiday and what it meant for the Jewish people. So we said that there's two categories of suffering. Actually, I'm going to add a third one here just um, at the end. But uh, the first one we said is suffering as a wake-up call. That Hashem wants us to wake up. And obviously, we know that our time in this world is short. As the Ramchal said, at best 70 or 80 years, if you reach the age of 100, it's already as if you're not living, so to speak, because so much of so many of your faculties are not functioning anymore. And so we need wake-up calls throughout our life to try and create within us the concept that we are not a body, but a soul. Because these kind of different kinds of painful challenges and sufferings come to make us more spiritual. Realize that, gee whiz, the purpose of life can't be this world. Because even with all the wonderful joys 
and wonderful pleasures of the world. There's so much pain and suffering. How could it be that this is it? This is the last stop. I've made it. You know, as long as I, you know, the person with the, with the most toys wins, you know, as long as I, uh, you know, it, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense logically. So that first kind of suffering is that God is nudging us to say, you need to be growing. You need to be in touch with your neshama. You need to realize that you're a spiritual entity with a body. And, you know, sometimes one of the ways that they say that you can do this, you know, when something happens, God forbid, let's say to a specific limb of your body, you can introspect, you can ask yourself, you know, what do I do with this limb of my body? Am I using it correctly? Could I use it more? You know, my arm hurts. Maybe I don't do enough chesed or maybe I need to be giving more. You know, let's keep it positive, right? Maybe I should give more tzedakah stretch myself a little bit, you know, trust Hashem a little more that I can go a little higher, a little further. That's one way to look at it. You know, another, another um, way is my, my Revitson, Revitson Weinberg, Rav Noah's wife used to say, God doesn't speak Chinese to English speaking people. What she meant by that is that when God's giving you a nudge, he's trying to clearly, uh, communicate with you that there's something that you need to fix that there's something that you need to introspect on and ask yourself where am I going wrong what could I do better now the truth is is we can't always know the answer to that and we might never know the answer for why we have a certain limitation or a certain pain or suffering but what I always say is it can't hurt to look to improve oneself, even if you got the answer wrong, right? Like, no, that's not why Hashem gave me that suffering. But as long as you're saying, listen, let me, let me do something. Let me daven with more intention. Let me give a little more tzedakah. Let me try to look around and see what other people need. Let me be more careful with my mouth if I have canker sores all over them. Don't eat, don't eat too much sugar either, but, right? So even if you're not correct in why God sent you that, it can't hurt to use it as a motivation to grow your soul. Okay, so that's one of the reasons that we say that God gives it to us. We also said that pain deflates ego that it allows us to make space for God, that God is trying to correct our character flaws, that suffering humbles while our belief in ourselves inflates. And sometimes God does this just to make us realize how dependent we are on him, right? When all of a sudden you can't do certain things or you can't do the usual things because you're sick, it makes you realize how weak you really are how dependent you are. You know, even let's say your shoulder's hurting you and you can't get dressed by yourself in the morning. So, you know, it's human nature that we ignore things. We ignore God when things are going well. 
I once told the story about uh, the guy who was locked out on the roof of the office building. You remember that one? And he doesn't know how to get back in. And he's up on the top of a very high building in Manhattan, let's say. And uh, there are people walking around on the street below and he wants to get their attention. So somebody will come up and, you know, tell them there's a guy stuck on the roof. So he starts emptying his pockets and throwing down change and then bills. And nobody looks up because they're all so busy collecting the change in the bills. And, you know, he's out of money. And now he's really desperate. We'll say it was December and freezing outside. No coat. He'd come out for a smoke. So he's looking around and he sees, you know, some rocks on the, on the, on the roof and some old office furniture that's been put up there for storage. And he starts throwing those things down. And of course, it doesn't take long, literally a second, for people to look up to say, what the heck is going on up there? <laughs> so unfortunately, that is the human condition, that when things are going well, we barely give God a, gla a glance. But when things start to go awry, not the way we want, and we're faced with challenges and questions about life itself, you know, then you start looking up. There's no atheists in a foxhole. My husband always used to say, you know, he does great funerals. I, I know it sounds crazy. <laughs> My husband's a shul rabbi, and of course he had to do a lot of them. But what he would say about funerals is he, he would say they're the best crowd to talk to because everybody is so open, so open, and is so ready to accept new ideas about this world and the next world and the idea of being a soul. Whereas all year long and throughout people's lives, nobody really pays attention. Actually, at all the different life events, a birth, beginning of life, the end of life, and sometimes in between, those are the best audiences because there's a certain openness that people have in moments of tremendous joy or tremendous sorrow. By the way, I just want to say that it's a very Jewish idea, too, that when we do experience tremendous joy, you know, when we have something that happens, right, something that we would call a coincidence or something that we really wanted and it came true and we're on cloud, cloud nine, we're on cloud nine, we're really excited, right? So there's a Jewish idea that don't just allow those emotions to wane without putting it into something concrete. You're feeling tremendous gratitude. You're feeling tremendous joy because of something Hashem did for you. Give some tzedakah in that moment. Call somebody in that moment. Do a mitzvah. Say, I'm going to take on something new because forever I want to connect this mitzvah to this incredible moment that happened for me. You know, my son graduated Harvard and became the doctor he always wanted to be, even though he had learning disabilities his whole life. And we thought he was going to be a nothing and a nobody, right? So you're standing at his graduation and you're 
overflowing with gratitude and nafas, of course. So don't just allow those feelings to overwhelm you and then not put them into something concrete so that you have created something forever. Not only for yourself, because perhaps you've made yourself bigger, you've used it. Same way we have to use suffering to grow, we also have to use the good fortune in our life to grow. God gives you extra money, you say, oh, now I'm going to give more to my favorite charity, right? Now I want to do more for people around me who don't have. So we want to take the good in our lives and also use it to grow. And the idea is, is that when we do that, and if we do that, God doesn't have the need to nudge us through the negative, through difficulties and challenges, ideally. Although we know that nobody gets through this life without, you know, certain, you know, pain and suffering, right? There's a famous story of Nahum Ishkamzu. Does everybody know that story from the Gemara? So Nahum Ishkamzu was famous for saying the words, Gamzu Latova. Basically, everything that Hashem does is for the good, right? There's a story about Rabbi Akiva as well. But basically, this was a man who was living in most horrible conditions physically. He was a great rabbi or a great sage or a great Jew. And he had boils all over his body. It was clear that he was suffering. And, you know, they would come to him and say, how can you live like this? And he would say, I don't understand what you're talking about. Because he was on such a high level. He said, everything that God does is for my good. Everything that God does is for the good. So I don't understand. This is all good. Okay, now obviously this is a very high level. I just want to give you a taste of the people that we're supposed to be learning from. Of the great people among the Jewish people that we look up to. Okay. We said that pain sensitizes us to the needs of others. When we've been through something, we know what it feels like. And we'll be much more open-hearted, open-handed, and willing to be compassionate. Also, this kind of pain and suffering causes us to pray. And we said that prayer is a sweat of the soul, called the sweat of the soul. Tears. Tears are called the sweat of the soul. And of course, we create this close connection that perhaps was unavailable to us when everything's going well. This digging deeper into making the reality of the connection between Hashem and your soul much deeper and more real through challenges and, you know, the need to call out or cry out to Hashem when nobody else can help and when you've reached the end of it. Hopefully we cry out before then, but unfortunately for a lot of us, it's only when we are completely, when we've completely exhausted all human resources, 
right? You can be the wealthiest person in the world, but you can't find the right doctor to fix you. Even though you can fly all over the world and buy the best doctor, right? You have all kinds of connections. You're a very important person. And yet these people also come to a place where they realize very uh, starkly and shockingly that there's no one that you can rely on or call out to except for Hashem. There's no one who can save us, right? It says even when a sword is poised at your neck, the Talmud teaches us, you should never give up hope to Hashem. Because ultimately, he's the only one who can save. And he's the one who will send the shlichim, the messengers, the right doctor, the right people to be able to deliver and give you what you need. Okay, so going into our next subject, the second reason for suffering is the idea of suffering out of love. Yisurim me'ahava. Right? And of course, God sends us suffering and pain and challenges because he loves us. Right? We said. And it's actually a very high madrega that when you're going through the suffering itself, you are mekabel yisurim be'ahava. I accept these yisurim with love. That I know and understand that it's coming from a loving God who loves me. Not a punishing God. Not a God who's out to get me. You know, I I had to laugh when I was going through my own uh, difficult illness back in whatever, when I was 35 with five kids under the age of six. Um, You know, and of course I was going through the why me, why me, right? The why me syndrome. And my husband jokingly said it was good that he had a sense of humor through it all. He said, why you? Well, listen, Hashem looked all over the world and he couldn't find a bigger Russia. (laughs) He couldn't find a more evil person than you. I mean, that's clear, isn't it? Right? So obviously that's absurd, isn't it? But that's the way we feel when we're going through some kind of difficult pain, challenge, suffering. Boy, it must be God hates me. I really must have done something wrong. He's really out to get me. So obviously this is not a Jewish idea. That, you know, we said, how can God cause this pain to come from love? How can we understand this? So I think I spoke already a lot about it. The idea that the only way we can really understand it is to internalize in a very deep way that I am a soul, that I'm only here for a short time, that I have a tikkun, something that I came into this world to repair, and that Hashem wants me to reach the finish line. And one of the ways that he does it is by giving me a surah. You know, as that song that I read to you, 
the idea that our souls are on a temporary journey and we're part of a much bigger picture, a much larger story that began at creation and continues to this day. Our souls are all recycled. And in each visit down here, we're just moving closer and closer to the goals, to the goal of the soul's perfection and learning the lessons and experiencing the different pains and challenges that it needs to go through in order to be cleansed, in order to return to God in a pure way. I can't help but tell you the story of one I usually tell on Rosh Hashanah about the guy who dies and he goes to his court case in heaven. And on his way to the court case, he's standing at the side of the road hitchhiking to get to the court case. And this big, huge truck pulls up. This big, huge Mack truck pulls up. You know, he's standing by the side of the road. And uh, he says, where are you going? Uh, he says, well, I'm going to your court case. And he says, oh, oh, could I get a ride? He says, well, I don't have any room. He said, why, what's in the back there? Your Averas. No room, sorry. And the truck speeds by him and he sees 25 more trucks like this coming down the road. And with each one that stops, he asks the same question. You know, where are you going to your court case? What's in the back? Your Averas. Sorry, no room, right? And then he finally sees at the end of this whole trail of trucks, this little white jalopy clunking down the road. And he puts his thumb out and the driver pulls over all dressed in white, right? Man from Glad. And uh, he says, where are you going? He says, I'm going to your court case. He says, oh, he looks inside the car and he sees this little white package tied with a white ribbon sitting by itself on the back seat. He says, what's, what's in the back? He said, those are your mitzvahs. He said, do you have any room? He says, plenty, get in. <laughs> anyway, they get to the court case. And of course, he's standing there in horror because the court case is basically the sign of, I think it's, is it Libra? No, I don't know. The sign of the scales, right? Tishrei, that, ha that is corresponds to when we have Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur every year. And there's these two massive scales. And he sees that for hours, the black trucks, those Mack trucks have been unloading onto one side of the scale. And he knows what's coming. He knows about his little white package. And of course, he's terrified. And they throw the little white package on the other side of the scale. And of course, nothing happens, nothing moves. And he's standing there and he's waiting what his verdict is going to be. And all of a sudden, the prosecutor is interrupted by the defense attorney who says, hold on a second. On the same side of the scale, the mitzvahs, we have to put every challenge, every ordeal, every suffering, every pain, yeah, every pain that this person went through, starting with kindergarten when there was this bully in the class that used to make fun of you, 
and going through grade two when you were embarrassed by the teacher because she called you out on something that you didn't do, right? Et cetera, et cetera, right? The smallest details of any pain that you experienced in your life. You stubbed your toe, right? You reached your hand into your pocket to take out a $1.25 and you pulled out a 10 called suffering according to the Talmud, right? So what happens is they put all of the person's pain and suffering on the other side of the scale with the mitzvahs. And all of a sudden the scales are equally balanced, totally equally balanced. And the person is standing there and he looks up to God, who's very close by now. And he says, God, why couldn't you have given me a few more Yasurim? Just a few more. Okay, I had to tell that. So again, we have to realize that we're a soul. And for some souls, 80 or 90 years is what they need to fulfill their mission in this world. And others can come down into this world for only a week, for only a day, for a year or a few years. Because sometimes that's all that is needed to accomplish its mission. And sometimes, of course, that soul comes into the world for those people who are around them in their families to teach them certain lessons, to have them experience something that is not the usual, but to sensitize them and make them different kinds of people, people who will hopefully turn their lemons into lemonade and not become bitter throughout their lives. So sometimes these souls live for others who need to experience the loss, the pain, and the suffering that relates to their own mission and what they need to accomplish. Some souls are given healthy bodies and, act, and they're active with so much to accomplish. And others are disabled, but they have the powerful ability to open the hearts of the people who care for them and pray for them in a unique way. I have a family member who had a child who was born with every issue you could imagine. He was blind. He was deaf. He would never be able to walk. Uh, they were building an elevator in their house at the time that he was born. And a year later, exactly a year later, he actually died. And this person who told the eulogy at, this fun at the, her son's funeral she said that a little girl from next door used to knock on the door all the time and say, can I play with Ellie? And she would think to herself, what does she want to play with Ellie for? She's got dolls that do more than Ellie will ever do. But she realized he was, she was attracted to his neshama. His neshama was such a high heliga neshama that that's why she wanted to be near him. You know, uh, there's stories told of great rabbis who would stand up when a Down syndrome or special needs child came into the room. They would stand up with the recognition that this broken body holds a very high neshama, a very pure 
healing in the Shama. I worked with autistic kids for many years. And I used to say that the pain and the suffering that they go through is because they're living between heaven and earth. You know, they're not down on earth with the rest of us, regular, normal people. And they're not up in Shemayim. They're somehow caught between the two worlds, which must be so, so very difficult. But they have definitely high Shamas. Some souls have missions that involve tears of joy, others tears of pain. Who knows which river of tears penetrates the cosmos deeper in the cosmic master plan. As I said in the last class, all of our souls were created at the beginning of time and present in Adam and Eve. Adam and Chava was the composite of all souls that would ever come into the world. You know, Moshe, David, they were all splinters of these souls. But as we go through time, the splinters become much smaller, much less great. As we know, with each generation, we diminish in terms of our power, the power of our neshamas. But of course, a neshama is a neshama. And uh, we still have this greatness. The Talmud says that this painful experience that we experience with suffering is not coming from a place of harshness or discipline. This Yisuri Me'ahava is coming to elevate our soul in a way that is deeper than we can grasp, right? We know that we say about all those people who perished in the Holocaust, that they died the deaths of Kadoshim. But anybody who dies, Al-Kiddush Hashem, because of the fact that they were a Jew, Whatever their level of observance, Noah Weinberg used to say that about Israeli soldiers. Whoever's killed because of the fact that they're a Jew goes to the highest places in heaven. So the souls whose mission may seem harsh in this world are the pipelines for divine love and compassion to flow into the world in abundance. And what that means is that, you know, we have this idea that sometimes a tzaddik is suffering for everybody else, right? That, I mean, it sounds almost Christian. I know it's interesting, but it's not. But the idea is too, that they say that when a tzaddik dies, when a tzaddik goes to the next world, that it's almost like Hashem has to take that incredibly great person in order to be able to keep the world going. Because it's as if we don't really deserve the world to keep going, the regular Hamon Am, the regular people, with all the sin and sadness and, and evil that's in the world, but that certain people experience well, this is the different idea, either experience a lot of suffering as if they're suffering for the world, suffering for the sake of the world, so that pipelines of divine compassion and love can flow into the world in abundance. Or again, this other idea that we say that when a tzaddik dies, one of the things that Jews think about, right, 
when all these people died at the beginning of COVID, there were a lot of great rabbis, a lot of great people in New York and Israel, around the world. So one of the Jewish responses, the hashkafot, are that for whatever reason, God had to take all these people in order that the rest of us should be able to continue. Almost like, you know, paying a certain debt, paying a certain, I don't know, fine, putting money in our bank account so that we can have what we need to continue. I don't know if that's a new idea to you, but it's a very foundational idea in Judaism. Okay, I just want to end with uh, something that uh, Rabbi Buxbaum brings down when he talks about hope. And again, you know, one of the greatest antidotes to hope, to suffering and pain is obviously bitachon, Increasing our bitachon and Hashem, our trust and understanding that everything God does is good. And even if we don't feel good, or even if we ask for Hashem to change things, which is what we should do, whether or not he decides to or not, is part of a plan that's much bigger than we are. And of course, in the next world, we'll understand everything. In this world, we have a lot of questions, it says. In the next world, we'll have a lot of answers. This world is like the back of a tapestry. It doesn't make a pretty picture. It's just a bunch of knots and threads going in all kinds of chaotic and random directions. When we get to the next world, God turns over the tapestry. And what emerges is an incredibly beautiful picture. And we understand why. That knot had to be there. And that hodgepodge of, you know, colors that didn't make any sense were over, were over there on the back of the, of the tapestry. Um, so basically hope is a very Jewish idea that we always hope to Hashem. We always daven for Hashem to change things. As Avram Avinu taught us, if there's 10 righteous people in Sodom, God, please spare everybody, right? We don't just accept suffering. We accept it when there's nothing more that we can do. But we also try to change this world and create heaven on earth. That's the Jewish response. We say, no, it shouldn't be like this. I should get every green light when I'm in a rush. I should have a perfect day every day. I shouldn't suffer at all. And the fact that there is any of this, we rail against it. And we cry out to Hashem because of it. But we also know that ultimately Hashem knows what he's doing. That's why he got the job. And, uh, we bow our heads. And this is what Rabbi Buxbaum writes at the end. He says, imagine all pain in this world is like the pain of childbirth. Though the pain is intense, the mother believes that each contraction is bringing the baby one step closer to taking his or her first breath. Though it feels like death, it's actually the beginning of life. 
And at any moment, that next strong contraction might be the one that will push the baby to the point of emerging in the light of the world. Okay, 